You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Um, Today we'll be going in continuation through Ephesians. We'll be walking through the next few verses right before we get, it'll, it'll end us right next to chapter 3 of Ephesians. We've gone through some powerful um, messages prior to, to today. These last two messages, the first in Ephesians 1 and the beginning of Ephesians 2. Let me just get this ready here for And today we'll be talking about the very thing that we'll be doing. So we'll be talking about com- communion. We'll be talking about unity. We'll be talking about the household of God. We'll be talking about the temple of God. What is that? Who are we? Who is God? We know that at one time we were separated from God, but now we have been brought together. And we have been brought together through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what we'll sort of pierce into today. How is it possible that what once was separate can become united? So before we uh, get going, I'd like to just lead us in a quick prayer, and then we'll, we'll get into the passage, we'll read the, over the passage, and we'll get going. Father, I, I, I thank you today that you have brought us here. However many of us have arrived, I thank you, Lord. We know, Lord, that you have saved us, Lord, from lives, Lord, that were depraved from situations, Lord, that um, were horrible, Lord. And when we came to you, Lord, we found true rest, true hope, true peace, true love. Father, I ask, Lord, that this morning you would remind us of who we are, of who we are in you and who we are in this body, in your body, and how, Lord, we are united in you so that you might be glorified in this world. We are grateful to serve such a wonderful God and such an awesome King. We ask, I ask, Lord, that your, the word that would be spoken today, Lord, that you, Lord, would, uh, would lead it, and that, Lord, you would pierce my heart and pierce the hearts of all those that hear it. We trust this service, Lord, in your hands today. Amen. So let's go ahead and read... Uh, Read through the, the scripture that lies ahead of us. This scripture is Ephesians 2, verses 11, all the way down to 22. Let us begin. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he's done this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body 
through the cross, thereby killing that hostility. And he came and preached the peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you no longer are strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple into the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we see the same words that Christ mentioned uh, in his communion, do this in remembrance of me. We have remember starting off again in, in this passage. Therefore remember. He starts with therefore remember. So after Paul has reminded the Ephesians of who Christ is, so we read that in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he reminds them of who Christ is and what he has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. He now tells them to remember. Because what follows in the next few verses, and we'll read those, we tend to forget And in forgetting, we can begin to become stumbling blocks rather than building blocks. We can impede rather than build. So before we start with verse 11, I want to take us back two verses to what was preached on last Sunday. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that anyone may boast, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Powerful, powerful two verses. And like Lucas said last Sunday, Paul is writing this as if he envisioned what was to come. He is writing this as if he knew what people in generations to come would say about faith itself, right? That faith is a work. And I'm sure Paul, in all of his knowledge, could see it coming to a certain extent. But he lets us know that there is no way we can boast about any of the good that results in us, even and including the faith we have. God has prepared all that is good for us to walk in, and he directs our ways. So those two verses, I want to start there because they are crucial. They are crucial for what comes ahead. It is setting the stage and helps us to assume our role, which is that we are the moved, all of us, we are the moved, and there is one mover, that is God. We are all bricks, and there is one bricklayer, and there is one chief cornerstone. We must desire to understand who God is and remind ourselves of what he has done, And we must remember who we are outside of him. It sounds a lot like the gospel. Because it is. Once these truths, or the gospel, is posted to the doors of our mind, we become plastic in the immutable hands of God. It is easy for him to mold us in his image, into the image of Christ. We may not look different physically, and we all know this, right? When we were redeemed, there's no change physically, but there's a deep and profound change spiritually. We are made new. 
This transformation allows us to take part in God's plan to unite all things in Christ. And we gladly unite under Christ because he is our head and we are his body, right? As was written and was uh, preached through the message before last by Ovi, right? Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head, gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So now we can go on to verse 11, coming to the realization that he is the head of the church and that he is also responsible for all the good that we see in us. So verse uh, so chapter or chapter 2 verse 11 Therefore remember those two words therefore remember that at one time you gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands So we should start by acknowledging the truth that sort of no one denies uh, we're it's part of who we are as humans the reality that this world is, was, right, divided. And we continue to create divisions every day, right? But there is a significant division that Paul wants to get to here. This particular division is the one that exists between the Gentiles and the Jews. And he clarifies that the Gentiles are called the uncircumcision, and the Jews who gave the Gentiles that name call themselves the circumcision. So these two groups, circumcised, uncircumcised, or circumcision and uncircumcision, they still exist today. These same groups still exist today. Maybe in a different way, and also in the same way. And we'll touch that. Now this is a fair, description, this is a fair distinction. The Jews were not like the Gentiles. Literally different in their body. All the men had a physical sign that made them different from the Gentile men. But Paul, not feeding into this division that was very strong in their day, clarifies by saying, Gentiles in the flesh. This distinction of in the flesh meant that it was one based on the outward man. He goes further to say that you Gentiles are called this by the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, made in the flesh by hands. Once again, the distinction was an outward sign. It was made in the flesh. It could be easily verified. Hopefully, everyone was honest and verification was not a necessary or common occurrence. Um, but the Jews followed this command because it came with a serious, uh, serious punishment if they did not. So all the Jews, from when they were eight days old, had this mark on their body. They were marked from infancy to death, and it was irreversible. It was in their flesh, and this term of circumcision is connected to the covenant made by God with Abraham. And we should take a look at that, I think, before we go further. The covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 9 through 11. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
And we read this and we think, okay, and circumcised, we know what that means. And we instantly add ourselves, actually, the part of the next verse. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God clarifies. You shall, why would he need to clarify what we know is one thing? Circumcision, right? Because circumcision is really, all it means is to cut or to cut off. Right? So in this, in this situation, he says, all of you young men, right, all of your offspring, they must be cut or marked. And you shall be marked or cut in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So this division, this marking that God had made, it's not something that they had made. It's not something that they had imposed. It is a good thing because we know everything that God does is good. This marking was good. It was made with Abraham way back in the day. It helped to set them apart because by, by this cutting, they were being cut aside for God, separated for God. But this outward circumcision was not sufficient. And how do we know that? It was the thing that Jews would, right, you, you, had, you had pride in. You are part of the lineage of Abraham, the same promises and it is marked in your flesh irreversibly. Of course they should have a right to be proud of it, right? They have a relationship with God that no other nation has. But we know that it is not the end-all be-all. And we know this because Abraham was not counted righteous because he was circumcised. He was counted righteous because of his faith. His faith was counted as righteousness. So this sign was only skin-deep. And going back to Paul, he says that exact thing, that this division is one that is made in the flesh by human hands and therefore is not the ultimate marking of God's people. So we ask, what is the ultimate marking of God's people? They had made some really easy divisions here, some easy distinctions between people of God and not. What is the real one? The ultimate marking, the ultimate sign of, or the perfect sign of being part of God's covenant people, is to be circumcised in the heart. That first outward circumcision was irreversible, right, as we've said, and this marking would follow you to death. But the second circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, is done by Christ without human hands. The second, like the first, results in permanent or irreversible change. The difference is it does not follow you to death. The circumcision gives you life, eternal life. This circumcision is life-giving. It creates new passions and desires, and we without it cannot follow the commands that God has laid for us, including the greatest command, to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul and strength. Why do I mention this? Because what Paul is saying here is that both the Jews and the Gentiles are in need of a greater circumcision. He's saying they are both done, this is in the flesh, these distinctions. A greater circumcision has come. One that does, that does not divide by the outward man, but seeks to unify in spirit. While a better circumcision was necessary, that first circumcision was still extremely important. I've said circumcision a lot, I apologize. <sighs> Because it distinguished between the people in the covenant with 
uh, in the covenant with God and those outside of it. So the Gentiles were outside of this covenantal relationship, and that is what Paul is trying to tell them. That is what Paul is illuminating. He's telling them, remember that you were not part of this covenant. And here we see that in chapter, in verse 12, Ephesians 2, verse 12. So let, let's go ahead and go to Ephesians 2, verse 12. Remember that, once again, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated to the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we see that this distinction of circumcision and uncircumcision, it is important. This is serious stuff. The Jews had a far different reality than the Gentiles did. The first thing that is mentioned here is the most important by far. They were separated from Christ. Now what does that mean? As we know, if, if, if we know who Christ is, we know that he holds all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him, they are hidden. He is the way, the truth, and the light, and the life. Unlike the Jews that had a history and relationship with God, they had divine revelation through the law and the prophets. The Jews, they actually had a paddle to row with, but the Gentiles were without one. They were separated from knowledge and wisdom. They were aimless. They lived lives anchored in deceit and were completely blind. And even more, they were ignorant to it. That is truly a horrible existence. That was our existence as well. We don't remember it, and many of us were ignorant to it until Christ shone on our lives. Prior to our conversion, we lived that same way. And we do well to remember it today. We should remember who we were outside of him. Now the second thing he says here, they were alienated. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. The commonwealth of Israel. What is that commonwealth, right? And the real commonwealth of Israel was God, God himself. A non-Jew did not have the access to the laws and the prophets that a Jew did. Gentiles had their conscience to point them in the right direction. Unfortunately, that conscience is easily seared and ignored in comparison to having the texts that were read aloud daily in temples that were exposing sin and calling for repentance. And still we see Israel slipping and sliding and falling and failing. But they had the word of God and still they did that. Imagine what the Gentiles were going through. A far different, once again, a far less privileged reality. And they were being remind, the Jews were able to be reminded of these promises that were given to them, including the promises of a Messiah. The Jews were the wealthiest people of all because they could turn to divine revelation. They understood the necessity of repentance and turning from sin. On the other hand, Gentiles could not even be brought into the temple, as we see in Acts with the Jews accusing Paul of defiling the temple by bringing Gentiles into it. Now another difference is that for the Jews, no matter how dark the times were that the Jews faced throughout biblical history, they always had the covenants of promise. They had those to hold on to. The greatest of these promises 
was that God would one day send his Messiah to make all things right. And we see this within the Davidic covenant, where God makes a covenant with David. And it is even clarified in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, where he says, for, uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So they could be sure that God was going to keep his promises because their scriptures showed them that he was an unchanging God that did not break his promises. And one day he would make all things right and bring deliverance. But the Gentiles did not have this. And we know what they believed. They made gods in the images of man. And sometimes they literally made men into gods. Their gods were petty. They fought against one another. They were driven by lust, greed, and ego. From Egyptian to Greco-Roman mythology, we see no difference between deity and humanity. They were trying to please gods with desires as erratic as their own. It was a futile endeavor. So it's pretty bad to be a Gentile, right, prior to Christ. They had, and the worst of all, well, the worst of all was the first. They didn't have Christ. But this, this last thing that Paul says here, they had no hope and were without God in the world. They had little joy in life. They were accustomed to things that many of us in this world are not accustomed to. Death was common. It was commonplace. Pain, suffering, hunger. Children died at young ages. Life expectancy was low. This was not a good time to be alive. And really, it's going from day to day surviving for many of them. The rich were, not, were few and the, the poor were many. And today, that same reality exists, but in a different way. It's a spiritual reality, in, in America at least. We are depraved, we are lost, we are broken. We have no hope, and they were, just like we are, they were without God in the world prior to the day they were redeemed from death unto life. So a horrible existence for the Gentiles. And this is what, this is what Paul tells them, hey, you know that horrible existence you had? I want you to remember it. Remember it. Because now we're going to talk about the good that has come. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. We see written here, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right? His sacrificial blood, by the blood of Christ. It is forever sufficient. It covers every sin of those that believe in him. It is able to reach the most depraved of humanity and bring them near by that precious blood that was spilled. That means no matter your story, no matter how depraved, no matter how depraved you think you may be, it's probably not right. You're probably more depraved than you think you are. And no matter how hopeless it may seem, if you're, if you're fighting with addiction, battling depression, if you have been used, abused, if you feel as though you have been cast aside, even if you are face to face with death from sickness, his precious blood can bring you near to him. 
as was written in that wonderful hymn composed in 1837, close to 200 years now, a hymn that we all know. It was written by Robert Lurie and resonates profoundly in the, in the Christian heart. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is no one too greatly chained in sin that the blood of Jesus cannot free. And this is what 13 is saying, what, what verse 13 and what Paul is saying here. That while you were in that horrible position, now you are one of privilege. So Ephesians 2 verse 14. Let's move on to that. And it says here, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. For he himself is our peace. So we see a distinction there. He is peace, and the last word there, hostility. They're opposites. He is the peace that breaks down hostility, the dividing walls of hostility. Now, some, some even say that he's actually referring here to the wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles in the temple. Right? Not only, but also referring to that. Something that they would all would have known. Hey, that thing that separates us right now, that Gentiles can't cross over into, he has torn that down. Right? So Christ himself is our peace. And what he means by making us one, he's talking about the tribes we brought up earlier. The two tribes of Jew and Gentile. He has made us one. He has grafted us in, and now we can, without reservation, sing another wonderful song, one that we were probably taught when we were very young, right? Father Abraham. We can sing that song. I am one of them, and so are you, because we have been grafted in to this family, the household of God. Christ has done this in his flesh by becoming the one and only perfect sacrifice. Completely blameless, right? This means without any fault of his own, he suffered death on a tree bearing all of our sin on himself and rose again overcoming death and sin. The division made in the flesh has been torn down. There is no longer circumcision and uncircumcision in the flesh. They are both irrelevant. Christ is the door to all that wishes to come to the Father. So we must come through Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 15 through 16. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now you read this and instantly you're like, whoa, okay, something's wrong. Especially if you know what Christ said in Matthew, right? I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Something's wrong here. Is, is Paul wrong? Um, well, let, let's take a look here. Right? How, could it have, how could Christ have abolished the law when Christ himself states he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? The dividing wall of hostility is taken down, and he says it here, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He abolished them for us. So this would include the sacrificial system, right? It is an ordinance. 
it has been made null and void when a perfect sacrifice has been given for all of humanity. And that happened on the cross. His death abolished the need for a sacrificial system. And all the other things that were used to separate Jew and Gentile physically are no longer in place. We don't need to wear a certain type of clothing. We don't need to... uh, all, All the ceremonial laws that were in place, they're no longer there. Christ fulfilled them in his death and resurrection. But Christ has not only destroyed the wall between Jew and Gentile, but every wall that was ever built between people groups. Unfortunately, human beings are tribal. We love to form or join groups that align with who we think we are. And these groups become something very important to us because these groups give us an identity. But the very characteristics that define us, they also divide us. In Christ, they no longer are of any importance. The tribes to which we take part become dispensable. Race, gender, ethnicity, political ideology, whether you're blue-collar, white-collar, rich, poor, Jew, or Gentile. We cast them aside because we want to be defined not by our own characteristics, but by His in us. Christ makes us into something new, and in that newness, we want to be like Him. Like our Lord, we want to become one with our Savior. We see this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 to 29. We've actually uh, read through some of the verses, I think, earlier this morning, maybe. But yeah, uh, in Ephesians, at least. There is, uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is nor male or female, if you are all one, for you are all one in Christ, Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Right? So while the physical distinctions in this world remain, there is no spiritual one. We have been made one. There is no more barrier for you or for me to come to the throne of God above if we are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 through 19. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I don't know if you realize what we just read, but this is extremely powerful. This is, a, this is the best news we can hope for, that we have been made members of the household of God, we who were once aliens, strangers. So Christ came to offer peace to both us and, firstly, to the Jews. He came to the Jews and then to us, right? That peace was offered to us all. The promise that all nations would be blessed through Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus, and we see that in this building today. This is the realization of what Christ spoke to the lady at the well. The hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind the Father seeks. That is why we must not forget that God is the mover and that we are the moved. Or else we can start to sound like the Samaritan woman, thinking that our moving is securing our righteousness. 
We can change the external, but only God can mold the inner man. If we are not reminded by the gospel often of who God is, and if we forget what wretches we were outside of him, we can slip into legalism, focusing on works rather than on Christ, and we can become stumbling blocks rather than building blocks in the household of God. And we will seek to tribalize rather than remain humble, obedient, and unified in Christ. And the great news is that we are no longer strangers and aliens. As we read in verse 12, this is a terrible thing, right? We've already gone through that, what it means to be a Gentile prior to Christ. We are not the same because we have been made new and given eternal citizenship and counted righteous. Because he lives, just like another song says, we can face tomorrow. We no longer need to fear. We are in his sovereign hands. And no matter what trials and hardships lay ahead, we can tread through them because we have Christ. And we have hope of a day when Christ will return and make all things right. And now in this life, we no longer serve the gods of our own creation, but we have a true relationship with our Creator. We have become the wealthiest people, just as the Jews in the, in, the, in the circumcision and uncircumcision were counted as the wealthier, the more privileged. We now also take part in that because now we have part in divine revelation. We, we have the Word of God. In Christ, we are no longer servants to this flesh. And while the remnants of sin must be dealt with in the flesh, we know that they do not have power over us. We are citizens. We have access to the throne of God. We are adopted children in his household. He is our father. I am speaking of the creator of the universe, the one that holds everything in place yet cannot be contained, the giver of life the, and, and the author of all that is true. He is our father. How can we have this privilege and not yell it out to all that would hear? He raised us up and breathed a new life into us and has eternally marked us as his children. For those that have had children, I'm, not, I'm sure you can remember the first time that you held that child in your, in your arms. What I can guarantee is that he holds you better. And if you don't have children, someone held you in their arms for the first time. And I can guarantee he holds you better. We are blessed to be part of his household. And we are not only citizens, but we are child. We are children to the king. Amen? Let's move on. Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place by the Spirit. Built, uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets, right? They were vessels by which divine revelation was given to the people of God. The truths that we now hold in our hand, the Bibles that we hold in our hand, come directly through the apostles and the prophets. And that is how it should be, right? Every, the truth that is revealed to us by God should be our foundation, 
nothing else. All we believe and build upon should be anchored in truth, but something feels wrong when reading this, right? It feels wrong. Isn't Christ himself truth personified? Then how is he not the foundation? Why are the apostles and the prophets the foundation? He is merely the cornerstone, right? That's what it says here. Should he be mentioned here? Absolutely, yeah. But he is, actually. If we read closely, he is mentioned here as part of the foundation. So the problem is that in this modern day, we look at how our homes are built and even the buildings around us, and the foundation is the key, not the cornerstone. The cornerstone have, has actually become a um, sort of an ornament. You put it there to mark the date of when this building was erected. It really does not hold any more you know, importance than the other stones that are built upon the foundation. And uh, this seems uh, very wrong to us that... Christ is not the foundation, but the apostles and prophets. But let's see what Isaiah says. If we go to Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Another version, which isn't here, but that's okay, um, says, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. The one who believes in it will not be disturbed. So this is something extremely important in the integrity of a building, right? If it's just some ornate thing, this building would not be able to be such a strong building, right? The one who believes in it will not be disturbed. Christ is the cornerstone which the builders rejected. We know that as well, right? Of course, they would, that, they would do that because that's the story of the Bible. He is rejected. God has laid this stone, not man. No wonder it has been rejected. Almost all the prophets and apostles that pointed to this stone, which is Christ, were killed and all of them suffered for pointing to the truth. Christ as the cornerstone was laid in eternity past. He is what makes the foundation true and level. So he was placed first, right? You could not have the foundation without him as the cornerstone. And remember, he bears the weight of the entire building. So he is what makes the foundation true and level, and he not only makes it true and level, but he bears the weight of the entire building. So remember, the builders rejected this stone. Fair enough. They can reject this stone. But what they couldn't do is they couldn't remove it. The rejection of cornerstones was common practice. Builders would bring stone after stone until they found the perfect stone as the cornerstone to make sure that the rest of the building is true, that the walls go straight, that everything is level. And the ones that they didn't want, they would cast aside. But this cornerstone was laid by God. There was no casting it aside. What they had to do was move and build elsewhere. And believe me, they did that. And we have buildings erected that were not built on Christ all over the world, worshiping every other thing. And we know they are built on sand, right? One day they will crumble. That is because Christ 
is also a stone of stumbling. This is why they reject him. He is a stone of stumbling and offense. But for us, he is the chief cornerstone. There is none greater, none more precious. He is a living stone that has made us, which were once dead stones, into living stones. I don't know if you've ever seen a cornerstone, um, but the old cornerstones, he's the chief cornerstone, the greatest cornerstone. There are pictures online of old buildings with cornerstones that, I mean, are taller than me, that you can tell they're in the foundation, and they hold, you can tell they're definitely bearing the brunt of the load, right? But we know that he is the chief cornerstone. So that chief cornerstone bears all the load. It bears it all. And when he has made us into living stones, as he is, he joins us together in himself so that we may grow into a holy temple in the Lord. We are that spiritual temple. We here are that spiritual temple. There is not a surer temple than this. We must trust that he bears, as I said before, all the load and know that he is the cornerstone that makes us sure. He has chosen us not because of how pretty we are or, you know, that we fit perfectly into, his, into, the, into the temple he's building, but because, out of, because of his goodness and grace, he chose us. Without him, the whole building would collapse, and the, the foundation that is laid would have no purpose. We are no longer bound, this is the beautiful thing of what he's done in his flesh, right? What he has done by making us all living stones in his temple. We are no longer bound by a temple in Jerusalem, but we can worship in spirit and in truth, right? At home, at work. We can worship anywhere, including this local body in Garden City. This is truly a great blessing for us as part of that body, but the greatest blessing still remains for those that have not come to know Jesus because this makes it far different than what they had to go through prior, right? No more traveling to Jerusalem to go to the temple. We know that the covenant people of God, the Jews, were meant to be a light to the Gentiles, pointing them to the living God. But now, greater than ever, we must be a light to the world and no longer need to point them to Jerusalem because the Spirit of God lives within us. And those that we come into contact with are able to come to God in whatever place they are. They can meet God on the sidewalk in front of your house at the Kroger's on Ford Road. They can meet him in school or at the gas station, and yes, in Summit Church. We are blessed to be part of this living temple. But this living temple was not intended only as a blessing for us, but that it would be a blessing for all humanity. So let us not grow slothful, but let us be full of zeal to spread the good news of the gospel boldly because you are not peddling snake oil. You are carrying the good message of the living God revealed in Christ. And there is not a surer foundation than him. So we as the temple, as living stones in the temple of God, we are bound in a way that no other group is bound. And that is why when we are restored, when we are made new, when we are saved from death unto life, the old things have passed and the tribal things that we held on to, we throw away because there is a greater tribe that we belong to, right? The household of God. So let us be that household of God. Let's go out and preach the good news of the gospel.
Now, uh, as we transition over, that is, that is the end of the sermon, but as we transition over into communion and we partake of the bread and of the fruit of the vine, I want us to remind ourselves of all that Christ has done in his body for us and all that he has prepared for us to do in him and to remember, as Paul points, to remember the wretch that we were outside of his goodness and mercy so that he will be glorified this morning and that, that, that this communion would not be something that is common or that would be cheapened, but that we would worship him for who he is, our wonderful Savior. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.